0: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Welcome to Nothing Nothing Happens in a Small town. Town. I'm Melissa, or Missy. I am a web developer by day and an author by night. I write murder mysteries, horror, and suspense. I'm living in Maryland with my husband and my crazy dog, um, Dylan, also known as El Diablo. He
1: is a little devil.
0: Oh, yes. (laughs) And I'm Tara. I'm a military veteran and also
1: currently a federal civil servant. I focus on talent development for technical career fields. Woo! Not an author, though. (laughs)
0: Um, Tara and I have known each other for very Ever. many years. We are friends, but more like sisters. Sisters,
1: totally. Yeah. Missy is little sister to me. We've known each other, I
0: think, I think I was about 12, maybe younger than that. Yeah. I don't really know
1: what, it's one of those things. There was no aha, all of a sudden, I meet the Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> your friends were friends with my neighbors, and we eventually just, your parents, and my and neighbor's parents. Yes. Gracious,
0: I can tell. Okay. So, we are starting off this uh, podcast with our hometown. And so, we're going to be talking about where we grew up. And this town is Kewanee, Illinois. Uh, the population as of 2019 is 12,547 people.
1: And we remember when we were growing up, I think it was 13,900 is what I saw coming and yeah. going from the town back in the. Late 80s, early 90s time frame.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, and the town is kind of um, an interesting town because there's technically two towns in one in a way. Um, mm-hmm. There is a, a street that divides the town called Division Street. Which I actually grew <laughs> up on, which is awesome. <laughs> Couldn't be anything
1: like Togetherness Street. No, we definitely need to make, make sure we have that dividing line.
0: Yeah. So Weathersfield was there first. That's the side that we lived on. Um, and there's actually two school uh districts. District. Yeah. And because every
1: town with less than thirteen thousand people <laughs> needs to have two school districts. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially there was a Weathersfield over in England mm-hmm. and then when they moved to the States, they initially moved to Connecticut. Then sometime in the eighteen hundreds, some people from Connecticut bought land in Illinois. And named it, yet again, Weathersfield. <laughs> I think they actually purchased the land because the railroad was coming, but something about, I think it was too marshy or something, mm. and Keewan, the railroad ended up uh, going about two miles north, and then Kewanee grew up around where the railroad was. Yeah.
0: So, the first case we're going to talk about is the Pollock case.
1: All right, so the Pollock case. This um, actually will start you off with what the happenings of October 9th into the 10th of 1995. At this time, Tabitha Pollock and her children, David was two years old, Jamie Sue was three years old, and Preston, five years old, were living um, with her boyfriend, Scott English. On that night, they ate dinner around 6.30 p.m., And then around 7 o'clock, Tabitha's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend, because, you know, it is what it is, Pam, she and her son came home. They were also living there, and the children had some ice cream. The children played together downstairs, as children do, until about 9.15, when Tabitha took her children upstairs to her bedroom to watch television. The littlest David fell asleep in his own bed in her room, because David slept in the same room as his parents'. Um, Preston and Jamie fell asleep on Tabitha's bed and she then later moved them to the room where they normally slept at about 11:30 p.m then she went downstairs to do some laundry she checked Jamie and Pre- she checked on Jamie and Preston at about 12:15 everything seemed fine well Scott he worked kind of a, a swing shift if you will he went to work around four o'clock and arrived home at about 1240 a.m and sometime after she he came home, she noticed that the kids were a little restless. She went up to check on them and found that Scott was at the foot of their bed, telling him to go back to sleep. Um, like a good mom trying to make sure the kids actually sleep. She was afraid if the kids saw her, they might actually get up and go, "Mommy, Mommy, Mommy." So she kind of stuck to the side to make sure that the kids didn't wake up. Um Scott then went downstairs to get something to eat and came back up, and they sat in the bedroom and talked while he ate. They each took a shower. And just so you know, the the way to get to the bathroom, they actually had to walk through the bedroom where the little kids were sleeping to get there back and forth. Um, When Scott returned from taking his shower, he told Tabitha that he had checked on the kids and they were fine. So after they showered, they both watched TV till about 3 or 3.30 and went to sleep. Um, Before going to sleep, Scott went back to the bathroom and on his way checked on the kids again. When he returned, he told Tabitha that Jamie had been wrapped in her covers and he fixed Sometime later that morning, it was around 4 or so, Tabitha and Scott woke up um, because the youngest, David, was crying. Apparently, he had a fever, so Scott gave him some Tylenol. And when he did, of course, just like kids do, he spit it up a little bit, so Scott went to wash up. um, And again, he had to pass through the children's room to go back and forth to the bathroom. Shortly afterwards, um, Scott said he heard a noise. Next thing Tabitha remembers was Scott standing in the bedroom doorway, telling her that Jamie Sue wasn't breathing. Scott told her that he went into the bedroom, found Jamie wrapped in her blankets again, and when he unwrapped her, found her lifeless and not breathing. Tabitha went into Jamie's room, picked her up, brought her into her own bedroom, where she started doing CPR, at the same time screaming at Scott to call 911. Tabitha said that Scott later told her he had tried performing CPR on Jamie too, but she didn't know for how long. So at 4.58 a.m. on the 10th of October, the Kiwanee ambulance, um, manned by two EMTs, arrived at 720 Pleasant Street in response to the 911 call that a three-year-old child was not breathing. Upon their arrival, they were immediately directed to the upstairs of the home where they found Abitha performing CPR on Jamie. According to one of the EMTs, James Eisner, Jamie's skin tone was bluish, and she was unresponsive, but her body was warm. Um, Scott had told Heisner that he discovered Jamie's lifeless body wrapped in her blankets when, she checked on, when he checked on Jamie and her brother Preston, who had been sleeping on a waterbed in the other bedroom. Jamie was immediately transported to Kiwani Hospital. Tabitha rode in the ambulance and assisted in continuing the CPR on Jamie on the way there. They arrived at 5.05 a.m. There, the emergency staff, Um, headed by Dr. Renato Parungo, uh, took over resuscitation. He and his staff worked on Jamie for nearly an hour, but Jamie never showed any signs of a revival. When an hour had passed without any success, they terminated resuscitation efforts, and Jamie was pronounced dead. Tabitha was allowed to hold Jamie after she was pronounced dead. She sat, rocking her for a while. When they finally removed Jamie from her arms, Tabitha broke down, crying uncontrollably on the floor.
0: And now we're taking a short little break to give you a little fun Kiwani fun fact. So Kiwani made it into Ripley's Believe It or Not.
1: Believe It or Not.
0: (laughs) At two cents a day, Emily owed Illinois Kiwani Public Library $345.14 for a poetry book checked out in April 1955, the world's largest fine for an overdue library book. Way to go, Emily. Emily. Holy crap, that must have been one heck of a poetry book. <laughs> I mean, the only thing we can think is maybe something sentimental was written in it and yeah, she like her just
1: boyfriend wrote yeah.
0: something. I don't know. Yeah. Just buy the
1: book, man.
0: Yeah, no kidding. It would have been cheaper. Buy a book and replace the library book with book. Try to take the yeah. stuff, you know, the little pocket and what have you off of it and put it in. It. And I kind of wonder if, you know, she paid the fine or if, you know, it's, it's still, still going. <laughs> Is she
1: still alive? Yeah. Emily, so, you know, you if anybody's the out there,
0: please tell us. We'd love to know.
1: All righty. Now back to the Pollock case. Um, we're just going to roll with these factoids. So how in the world did Jamie die? So on the afternoon of the 10th of uh, October of 1995, um, the forensic pathologist was called in, Dr. Violet. And I don't know. I'm just <laughs> going to get this wrong. It's H-N-I-L-I-C-A. Y'all help me here. I mean, I grew up with a weird name, but yeah. Okay. In... Nilica? We'll go with that. Yeah, Nilica. that
0: sounds good. All right. Yeah.
1: So essentially, uh, actually, the emergency room, they noticed some bruises. So the nurse uh, called in the pathologist, and it was reported to the state police. So the pathologist started the autopsy on Jamie's body to determine the cause of her death uh, the afternoon of the 10th. So this is the same day that she's pronounced dead. Um, The autopsy first involved an external examination, of course, followed by an internal examination that was conducted the next day. Um, The doctor testified that the autopsy took a great deal of time because she, in conjunction with the police investigators and crime scene technicians, collected and preserved evidence throughout the autopsy. Using various techniques, including ultraviolet light, Jamie's body as well as her clothing and bed linens were examined and attempts were made to match patterns from various items to marks found on her body. In general, the doctor claimed that the external examination revealed bruises of various various ages over her body and splotchiness of color over her face with areas of pallor or paleness. A detailed visual inspection of her body revealed the following, a greenish-blue bruise in the upper right chest, a greenish-blue bruise mid-chest near the right breast, a bluish-green bruise in the right abdomen, a greenish-brownish bruise in the left chest near the armpit, a green contusion mid-chest near the left breast, and a greenish bruise on the mid-upper back. The doctor testified that the above-noted bruises were the ones that appeared to be Older in age, at least days in duration. She admitted on cross-examination that none of these older bruises appeared to be life-threatening, and all of the bruises could have been attributed to accidental childhood injuries. But with the aid of ultraviolet light, they found nearly 100 bruises. Um, There were additional bruises, um, in her opinion, which had occurred just minutes or at most hours prior to her death. The recent injuries included an area of swelling just above the right ear, faint purple bruise on the tip of the right ear, and larger purplish bruise on the lower part of the right ear, splotchy colorization, that's whole the mixed areas of paleness and pinkness, on her face, across the cheeks, bridge of the nose and mouth, abrasions on the sides and tip of the nose, a bruise and scrape area under her chin, a large area of bruising, extensive and not well defined, across her chest accompanied by curved claw marks, which were later matched to Jamie's own left-hand fingernails, bruising to the left breast area and upper abdomen, and two areas of scrapes in the left lower chest. On Amy's back, there were bruises to the skin along her spine and faint bruises over the upper back area. Slightly older bluish bruises were found on her right buttock, left hip, and the right forearm, but on the left forearm, there was a newer pinkish bruise. The doctor explained that the areas of pallor that were observed, like on her face, can occur when, and this is a quote, when something presses the blood out of the facial tissues, as in smothering. Also, asphyxia can cause petechia ruptures in the tiny blood vessels in the eyelids, face, and oral mucosa, as well as the upper neck and the thymus gland. Petechia were found in the conjunctiva of Jamie's eye and her thymus gland, consistent with her being smothered. The clawing marks found on her chest were also indicative of smothering. The doctor testified that in a smothering victim, they will often claw at the thing obstructing their ability to breathe, and in doing so, injure themselves. When conducting the internal examination of Jamie's body, uh, she peeled back her scalp, and in doing so, was able to determine that the swelling, which had been observed over her right ear, was due to torn blood vessels, which allowed blood to pool in the tissue. This type of injury, um, the doctor said, was most likely caused by a massive heavy blow to the head. In addition to this one massive injury, the doctor was able to discern 13 distinct areas of hemorrhage, each representing an injury to the head. It was noted, however, that estimating the ages of these bruises was not an exact science, and that several, perhaps perhaps as many as eight of them, were not recent injuries. The doctor concluded that the, the primary injury to Jamie's head, evidenced by the large air- area of hemorrhage, caused the brain to be shaken up. This caused Jamie's brain to swell to the size of an adult brain. Remember, she's only three years old. The doctor identified several photographs that had been taken during the autopsy, depicting the injury to the brain, as well as the areas of the bruising, in order to discuss this with the jury. Um, she opined that the swelling of the brain, which was likely caused by a heavy blow to the head, was the most significant injury suffered by Jamie. However, there was also evidence of an injury to the abdomen. The injury was consistent with a massive, rapid, or heavy force being applied to the abdomen, as with being kicked, stomped, or kneed. To be clear, the pathologist had noted these injuries were inconsistent with being simply struck on the back of the head, Twice. It was also inconsistent with being wrapped too tightly with a blanket. As you may remember, we discussed that she was wrapped in a blanket. Based on all of the evidence from this autopsy, the doctor concluded that Jamie's death had been caused by blunt force trauma to the head, brain edema, and asphyxia. In her opinion, either cause, standing alone, could have resulted in death. However, since there was evidence of both, it was impossible to say the relative portion that each contributed to causing her death.
0: All right, now another fun fact from Kiwani. This is uh, January 12, 1995 news. Um, in October, police in Kiwani, Illinois charged Roger Harlow with 81 counts of burglary. The insurance agent and part-time Sunday school teacher was accused of entering the homes of friends and people when he knew they'd be away and stealing about a 1,000 valuables over a 10-year period. According to police, Harlow once was late for a golf date because he stopped off to burglarize the homes of his golf partners. Awesome friend. (laughs) Really good friend there. And once he excused himself midway during a lunch date, allegedly dashing away to burglarize his companion's home and returning as the main course was being served. Well, he knew
1: where the person was, (laughs) not
0: home. He also allegedly stole from the homes of friends who were hospitalized. Way to go, Roger.
1: I really think Roger wins the Friend of the Decade Award here. He
0: really does. And I my mom was telling me that she remembered him. And before this in Kiwani, nobody locked their doors. I mean I don't remember locking my doors until yeah. I was in high school. This was really not a place where you locked your doors. But because of Roger a lot of people in town started locking their doors and, I mean, can you imagine, you know, if this guy is, like, going through your drawers and, I mean,
1: who knows? Was he fetishing? I mean, we only know about the things he stole. This is just, it's creepy. It is really creepy. Didn't you say that, like, I remember you were saying, like, with your mom, she said they were, he was stealing things that wouldn't be noticed.
0: Yes. So, sometimes people didn't even know they were being robbed until way later and it they probably weren't even sure because it's like, well, I wonder, because, you know, this is just the only thing we have yeah. on him. I
1: wonder if they then found out because they also found all this stuff. And Absolutely. then can you imagine saying somebody coming up to you, the police? Hey, is this your thing? Like a picture <laughs> of it? And you go, yeah. Uh, wait, isn't that in my like, I don't know, desk? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go check. Oh, hey, I, I have one just like that. Yeah. It's not in my desk anymore. Awesome. Yeah. Were you friends with Roger? You know, the Sunday school teacher. Yeah. So, yeah,
0: way to go, Roger, again. (laughs) Okay, so now
1: that we've gotten through all the factoids of this, so let's go into what happened next. So we know that of the day she died, they already were looking into this into being not natural causes. About a day and a half after she died, Scott and Tabitha were called to go into the police station. They came willingly for questioning. Scott admitted almost immediately that he had hit Jamie Sue twice on the back of the head, once forcibly and a second time with less force. He said he did not know why he did it, but prosecutors believe that he struck the girl out of anger.
0: So he, yeah, I mean, he was in and out of the room all night and who knows, but yeah, it was
1: since the way that house was, uh, set up i mean you had to go between the parents room to get to the bathroom you went through the little kids and we've got multiple times and also when they told their stories of what happened that night um because we looked through case files they're almost mirrored about the timing that everything happened now both uh tabitha and scott at least initially said they didn't do anything and then later scott recants his um uh, What's sort word i it for here? <laughs> Confession. Oh, I can yeah. do words. <laughs> I, I say this all the time at work. Anyhow, um, I'm better with written word. And sometimes with uh, talking, I lose my
0: space for a second. It um, happens to all of us. <laughs> so basically,
1: they're interviewing both of them at the same time, right? So um, a Lieutenant Huber was interviewing Tabitha. And he noted that when he told her that Jamie Sue hadn't died of natural causes, She was both shocked and astonished. And she just, he said that she just had a hard time grasping what he was telling her. She just couldn't believe that she had been murdered. And she told them that to her knowledge at that time, no one in the English household had ever hit or mistreated her children. And she maintained that she hadn't done anything to Jamie Sue herself.
0: And one thing we should maybe mention is that That household had a lot lot of people in it. So it was Scott's parents' Parents. house. So his parents lived there. Um, Scott, Tabitha, the three kids, and then his brother's girlfriend girlfriend and her kid kid. with the brother. Yeah. But the brother was in jail jail or something. So, yeah. But that's a lot of people. It's a relatively small house. We
1: looked at it. I mean, it. it, it, you know, wasn't anything remarkable to us. It's like, okay, it's Kiwani. It's a Kiwani house. It's a house that's built in, like, the 1800s, mid-1800s. It's a three-bedroom, one-bathroom house and, like, 1,600 square feet, I think. Sounds right, yeah. So, yeah, that's a lot of people for that house. And, but that's not that uncommon. No. I mean, we
0: both grew up with
1: one-bathroom houses.
0: I I actually had had two bathrooms. bathrooms. Yeah, because we had the... The bathroom downstairs and the bathroom upstairs but, yeah. but you guys were all sharing the one yeah. bathroom upstairs with yeah. showers and everything yeah yeah yeah
1: so, so I mean it's pretty standard for those older houses the bathrooms were added later yeah I know my bathroom wasn't original to the house Mm-mm. no I, I don't enough. think
0: either of ours were either <laughs> yeah. mm
1: about same vintage-ish
0: yes
1: (laughs) um so imagine tabitha's shock she's uh you know while she's being interviewed the interview gets called out and then he comes back in and says oh by the way your boyfriend admitted to this she's quoted as saying she did it didn't seem real that he was the person that caused my daughter's death so i mean at that time she was completely unaware that scott had done anything to jamie but during that same interview she also noted that Maybe it made sense. In the short time since her daughter died, remember this is about a day and a half, Scott had continually sought reassurance from her that she loved him and he even asked her to marry him. This is what she's saying. And before coming to the police station, she told the cops that Scott had told her he was scared because they always blame the one who finds the dead child and I'm just scared I'll be blamed.
0: Yeah. That that just, um, that reaction does make you kind of go okay again it's her word but still
1: it's very it's telling if this is the truth right so after this initial shock um before she went back and stayed with her parents and they started piecing together how he might have done such a thing and they began to look at him in a different light um since she'd moved in and this was only a month that she had lived there Jamie, Sue, and Preston had seemed to have one accident after another, but not her son that she shared with him, David. Because David, he's only the the dad of David.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But each time they ran into some accident or other, Scott and his parents said there was an innocent explanation. Um, When Jamie, Sue fell down the stairs, she had tripped on David's bottle, and when she got bruises, it was playing with other children. And Jamie Sue actually went to the hospital for stitches three days before she died. And the explanation was that she fell while brushing her teeth and hid her head on the bathroom cabinet. And it was actually the same emergency room doctor that had stitched her up as had um, pronounced her dead. Yeah. And she also remembered that Jamie Sue and Preston once told her that Scott had choked them. But at the time, he reassured it was all a misunderstanding. It was something about, like, she went to run by and... And he put his hand out and thought he was going to catch her in the chest. And she, like, ended up with her neck. That sounds,
0: hindsight, this sounds
1: really bad. Yeah.
0: And, I mean, a lot of this stuff, you can kind of go, well, you know, kids are kids. And they've been around
1: three-year-olds and five-year-olds. They tend to run like crazy Mm -hmm. little fools all over the place and trying to corral them as other than, you
0: know simple definitely and kids <laughs> fall and run yep. into things and heck i still run into things
1: oh you know <laughs> we'll not talk about how accident prone i might be well, let's see, i have a i have a divot on my shin still from falling downstairs oh wait would this be a, at one of your residences i promise i wasn't even drunk <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember. Uh, it's called
1: vertigo it sucks um but essentially i mean she really didn't believe again it was only a month and you know It. it, She's quoted as saying, "He's telling me this, and his parents are telling me this. Why would I doubt it?" Right. Again, she thought he he loved her kids. Definitely. Yeah. So, and you know, it was supposed to be a good thing moving in with him. Yes. She's um she moved in with him in October, uh, or no, I think it was uh.
0: Yeah, it was October. October,
1: so it hadn't been no October ninth is when this happened. So it oh, was that's right. September. September, yeah. Sorry, I'm like trying yeah, to remember notes. the exact facts. <laughs> who needs them? So she was a mother of four, and she was twenty-five at this time. I don't have any like what happened to the fourth kid. I'm presuming it's with that father. Yeah, I don't know. Um, and presumptively, from what I've been reading through everything else, every single one of her children had a different father, mm-hmm. but. You know, that's life. You're lucky in love or you're unlucky in love. Right. And, you know, that's basically her family. They, they, they said, you know, she'd had a string of bad relationships. She and her parents thought that Scott marked a change in her luck. He seemed to really care for her kids. On one occasion, spontaneously popping out to get some ice cream from Dairy Queen. And she really thought he was something. Yeah. But a month later, her daughter is dead. Yeah. I mean, that's just, it's, it's tragic. Um, you can sit here and try to say, Oh, she sucks as a mom, look, she had all these kids with her men, but she's not the only one. Right. There's no requirement that you marry everybody you meet. No.
0: <laughs> and you really shouldn't. And even well, in my case I ended up I, I'm twice divorced. So, you know, and I married once. It but you know what? Hey, I, I think I was lucky.
1: I kinda like the guy. Well, I,
0: I found a, I hope so. a good husband. <laughs> so <laughs> it but took I some mean, time. <laughs> you know,
1: we both know plenty of people had children with more than one guy and I I I do wonder though later and also I'm not that far away in age from her I'm only five years younger and I have friends and and family members who remember both of these people I'm guessing you guys probably wondered oh hey this is about Kiwani. so since you're from there do you know anything I did not personally know Tabitha I think I went to school with one of her cousins or brothers Again, it's one of those, I don't have a, a, never had a strong tie to anybody in our family, but the guy that I went to school with, he he was a year older than me. Seemed like a nice enough guy, no big deal. So, I mean, when I saw the name when I was researching murders in Kiwani, I'm like, oh, hey, I remember Mm Apollo And the Englishes, I'm not sure if they lived in Galva before, because apparently I do have a a. a bullying experience apparently with them that I don't remember because I was just a little kid. But um, there are those who said the English boys were no good. And, you know, we've got the one was in jail. Yeah. But, you know, kids that are schoolyard bullies that then become normal kids, you know, right. normal grown-ups. So,
0: I mean, you know, it, it is a small town, and I don't remember for at all. But I was quite a bit younger. I guess I would have been, what, like nine years? Nine years yeah, so, and I mean, you know, it. Yeah, it's just one of those things where people change. We all know we grow up, we become different people, and
1: you know, we all make mistakes. So you know, it's it's hard to give somebody, um, both Tabitha and Scott. Now Scott did confess and then later retracted, recanted his his testimony, but you know, she says she didn't do anything okay you know they both have pretty similar stories yeah so um you know trying to truly come down to who's the evil one i'm kind of there yeah i agree um but here's here's some more fun so tabitha appeared in front of a grand jury investigating the death of her daughter and she thought she was uh testifying to help So here she is, she had actually gone through the the grand jury testimony where she learned more, probably. Um, she learned that her daughter had some 100 bruises, bruises on her body when she died, most of them invisible to the naked eye. She and her parents really, you know, like I said before, they were starting to suspect that these accidents that she and her five-year-old brother had been having prior to this was, a, in fact, physical abuse where they didn't know it before. And she was in for another shock. I think they used the word shock a few times with her. Yeah. After her testimony, she says she was asked to wait in the hallway. And a few minutes later, the prosecutors told her she was being arrested. The grand jury had indicted her on the same charge as her boyfriend first degree murder. She was handcuffed and taken to the jailhouse next door.
0: And I, I mean, I can't imagine going to trial for somebody killing your daughter and then all of a sudden you're being arrested, yeah. but in Illinois, there's this law that a parent has a legal duty to protect their small children from harm, so <laughs>
1: she was guilty of the same thing because she was a bad mother, essentially, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, she had said she had never seen her boyfriend raise his hand to her children, and they argued that she should have known better, Um, And she was equally responsible for the crimes. So, um, you know, we we talked about her side and his side. We don't have as much from his side. Um, We do know that he confessed originally, but he recanted shortly thereafter. Um, Scott claimed that the police had threatened to take his son David away, and the the confession was coerced. And he later claimed to never have struck Jamie out of anger. Um, Only those accidents that, you know, just sound kind of, But at the same time, I don't know. I've got some weird stories like my lovely little (laughs) falling down the stairs because of vertigo. So, yeah, anyhow. But uh, at at his sentencing hearing, it was rather brief. The mood was somber. This is the original sentencing. He had about 30 friends and family who showed up. His mother was crying, and she actually, um, the father of Jamie, Sue was at the sentencing and he was siding with um, the English family. He basically said what's done is done. He claimed that Tabitha had blocked his fight for custody of Jamie Sue, who is his only child, and at this point her trial hadn't begun yet. I don't have any more information on Mr. James Erdman, and um, but apparently you know, he, he was unhappy with his relationship with Tabitha as well and had wanted, at least after the fact, to be included in his daughter's life yeah um Scott's older brother and sister Mario and Martha were there um and they held Tabitha completely responsible for what happened and wished their brother had never gotten involved here we go again with that whole she was a boyfriend stealer supposedly um and no good she had these kids with all these different guys I mean I've heard people talk about people this way Mm -hmm. and you know For good or bad or otherwise, their brother was associated with Tabitha. Yeah. She had lived in his house. Um, They claimed that he got the lower end of it. He doesn't feel like he should pay for it for the rest of his life. Um, Basically, Tabitha and her kids moved in with them um, because her electricity had been turned off. I do know she was of limited means. That's mentioned in some articles. Yeah. Um, But again, a single mom of three kids at home, that is kind of difficult. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I don't know what her actual living conditions were before. Right. Um, they said that she'd been in- investigated a couple times for mm-hmm. environmental neglect, and their brother had no criminal history, and Mario even said was went so far as to say the child is better off where she is, which to me is like, oh my gosh, he, did he just say that the the three-year-old was better off dead? <sighs> yeah, wow. and
0: that's kind of what it sounds like, and that's wow. really, yeah, kind of a crappy thing to say but yeah
1: and actually i think we forgot to mention oh david they claim that david was actually already living with them. the the two-year-old that was scott's son with tabitha um he'd actually taken him at the age of seven months so that would be a year and a half he'd been living with uh scott and his parents yeah and after um scott was sentenced uh at that time let's see. Tabitha was still awaiting her trial. Her oldest kid, Preston, was in the custody of her parents, and David was in the custody of Illinois Department of Children and Family Services, otherwise known as his mm-hmm. His parents were seeking custody of the, the little boy after that. And I wasn't able to find. That doesn't mean I just was not looking at the right places. But I never did find out if they did end up taking David on. Right. Um, at first, Scott was sentenced to life in prison. During a hearing in 1999, the sentence was changed to 50 years. Because mm-hmm. it, it went from, I think it went from first degree murder to felony murder. That, yeah, because that it was right. assault, aggravated assault of a child. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just a lot of, definitely a lot of feelings going on there. You, you can call this a he said, she said, obviously. I mean, my own personal opinion, I'm sure the, the courts and the juries looked at. Well, he confessed. Right. So even though there's a recantment and what have you, and the rest of their testimony being similar.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of the things that were mentioned that kind of struck me as odd is this whole thing with the blankets. Like, her getting yeah. wrapped in the blankets, and he seemed almost angry about her I, I guess bundling up in these. Oh blankets yeah, there was that and... whole
1: correcting her thing was yeah. in some, there,
0: there. It was long documents here. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot. <laughs> you of You don't want us to read all just, of this. Yeah. But um,
1: essentially, yeah, the reason there was a a big thing, he made a big thing out of her wrapping herself up in her blankets in the middle of the night. So I'm yeah. guessing she just would twirl herself in the blankets. Yeah, and, and I he think didn't a like lot it.
0: Did that? And, well, I don't know, but I
1: like being snug like a bug
0: in a rug. Yeah,
1: I mean. I don't know not anymore with hot flashes. Why
0: that kind of upset him or whatever, but it, yeah. it, it definitely seemed to upset him. and that was basically, his confession was she'd done it again and he
1: unrolled her. Mm-hmm. So he she'd done it earlier and he'd hit her in the back of the head twice. Once hard, once not so hard, which the pathologist says there was a heck of a lot more than just two hits. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were, what, 13? Yeah. And at least five of them were recent.
0: That's a
1: lot. And then also on the head. And then there was also the, whether you want to call it stomping or kneeing to the, the stomach. Yeah. So you, you just go, well, yeah, you wonder what really happened. Because, of course, only, two, only people who know what happened were the ones over there. Right. And, you know, Tabitha has her story and she stuck to it. And he had his story that he then recanted, but that couldn't be right either. Right. So you wonder if he just tried to diminish his... Um, his actions by saying oh yeah well I kind of did it but then <laughs> not that hard so I didn't think she could have possibly died maybe she just maybe she just you know wrapped herself up and suffocated herself in her blanket
0: mm-hmm. yeah so that was definitely something that kind of caught my eye- attention throughout the case is you know <sighs> it does make you wonder yeah. so um Essentially, you know, you think,
1: okay, so they're both in prison now, right? Um, she did go to go – to, um, Tabitha was tried, was found guilty of the exact same crimes. Um, she had uh, – the appellate court affirmed the conviction in 1999, and the, geor- the judge actually observed during a post-trial proceeding that Tabitha did not commit the act of killing, nor did she intend to kill the child nor was she present in the room when her boyfriend killed the child. You're like, okay, so why is she still in jail? Yes. <laughs> so there's this um, Northwestern University Center of Wrongful Convictions. Um, after the lawyer who had handled her appeal told her it would be hopeless to appeal any further, she went ahead and wrote to this Center of Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law. A law student read the letter and took it to the center staff uh, counsel, Jane Rayley, who agreed to represent her. Even though the deadline for filing a further appeal had passed, the Illinois Supreme Court agreed in 2001 to hear the case. In October 2002, they unanimously reversed call, uh, Tabitha's conviction, holding that a defendant cannot be convicted on an accountability theory based on what he or she should have known. Mm-hmm. So to con- can sustain a conviction of one person for a murder committed by someone else The law requires proof of actual knowledge, said the Supreme Court, and in Tabitha's case, both the prosecution and the judge had misstated the law in telling jurors they had to conclude only that she should have known, not that she actually knew, and that that Scott had posed a danger to her child. So the circumstances surrounding Jamie Sue's death, said the opinion, do not suggest that the defendant was aware of. a retrial so she's free completely by a vote of four to two and tabitha was released a few days before christmas in 2002 when she was released she had served six and a half years she was greeted by her parents and her then 12 year old son preston uh, and a bunch of reporters
0: was good considering Again, you know, it's this law we, thing yeah. was really kind of crazy if you think about it i mean if you <laughs> if somebody is ki- you know your child is killed and you're not there you have no knowledge of it you can still be convicted because you should have known
1: you should have known this person was bad and i mean how long does it take you to decide that something's not going quite white Right, quite right. Geez, I can speak today. I mean, I don't know because kids, like you said, they they fall down. They have accidents. Yeah. They play on the. I mean, I know I am a bruised girl. I mean, oh, shoot, me Last too. weekend was working on stuff at the trailer. I've got a couple interesting bruises on the underside of my arm.
0: I have bruises all the time. I have no clue where they came from. No clue. I'm just and like, I'm not
1: playing on a I playground.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, but, this um, is just walking around the house. <laughs> and again, a month.
1: Yeah. He says, oh, you know, it wasn't that, it was this. And I guess, um, I know at one point there was the, oh, he's mean. Yeah. And, I mean, I've been called mean by my nieces <laughs> when they were littler. Yeah. Um, just for, you know, telling them that they had rules.
0: Kids. Yeah. So, it it's really, I think, a stretch to say that she should have known. Right.
1: Because if you're going to say Scott is guilty, it's one thing if you aren't sure if Scott's guilty. Right. I mean, that's basically they hung they had to do her trial second because the whole idea is that she knew. Right. Not that she did it, but that she knew. But that she knew. Um, I mean, if they had a different theory of the case that she did it and for whatever reason, it would have to be a completely different theory of the case. Because I guess there is no, you know, uh, when it comes to murder, there's no statute of limitations. Right. They decided later, but they would have to also say that Scott didn't do it. Right. For her to be charged with something else. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Wow. (laughs) And she actually in 2008 filed a petition of innocence. I found that. Mm -hmm. Essentially it's like kind of getting your the governor to grant clemency. Yeah. But the governor is awfully backed up with other things that came up with another function called a petition of innocence. If she got that it would be a stepping stone to filing for redress which is otherwise known as compensation Mm -hmm. for being jailed. Um. I wasn't able to find out if she was successful.
0: You know, that's interesting because I do remember seeing something and of course I don't know the details, but I do believe they kind of said no. They were kinda yeah. like, eh, no, you're not gonna get any compensation. But you know yeah, maybe I was just looking at the wrong thing. Uh, we
1: we went through a lot of different things. Yeah, to there try was to find a it.
0: ton of information. So it
1: and some of it conflicted. So trying to make sure that we had more than one thing to say. Right. Because we did have more than one thing that said she filed for redress. Yes. So that's definitely a thing. Or not filing for redress, but file- filing for a petition of innocence. Yeah. Um, we do also know that Scott appealed a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least put um, petitions for support. court. Um, because the change in his sentence wasn't actually through an appeal. That was just a hearing. Mm-hmm. That it was changed. Um, but uh, basically um, his attorney- Attorney Jeff Campbell, um, basically, he had said that the way the law was written when his client was convicted relieved prosecutors of the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that Scott had intended to kill the child or prove that he knew his actions created the strong probability of death. The old law, because of course it's changed since then, undermined second-degree murder statute, and he opined that during the trial, there was enough evidence to give the jury an involuntary manslaughter instruction so he asked that the conviction be thrown out completely and not reinstated on the grounds of double jeopardy, uh, particularly since the Henry County prosecutors dismissed the murder charge in which they would have had to prove intent. Um, But the court held that the original, in that first appeal, um, that the circuit court did not abuse its discretion when it came to instruct the jury on involuntary manslaughter. The trial instructed the jury on both recklessness and knowing conduct. And say the evidence in this case shows that Scott English acted with intent to cause great bodily harm, injury in, intentionally or uh, injury found. In, oh, geez, I can do. The jury found him guilty of aggravated battery of a child, and therefore that he acted intentionally or knowingly. It could he couldn't be found both intentional and knowing and reckless. This is what happens when I go ahead and read. Word for word versus just saying the basics of it. So they found him found him guilty of felony murder, murder and um, he could not have just been acting recklessly there. Mm-hmm. So they he was they it should have acquitted him of aggravated battery of a child. Could not have convicted him of felony murder is what they were saying, and that's not how it worked. And he did appeal again in 2011, claiming he had ineffective assistance to the appellate council in 2004 and at issue it was whether he could be it could be considered a felony murder due to pinning his intent to the aggravated battery of a child charge um they were there were a couple of cases from a 1997 um murder where all the the individuals who were involved ended up getting acquitted or i think it was not acquitted they actually got their cases thrown out because they were tying it to that felony of battery and they should have known they, they didn't know it was going to cause the guy to die so the supreme court cases that they referenced was people versus morgan and people versus Pelt, um and the court found that scott should have raised the issue whether his conviction for aggravated battery of a child properly served as the predictable forcible felony to support the felony murder on direct appeal he didn't therefore they weren't going to play with it on the
0: that's quite a mouthful.
1: <laughs> I know. It's like, wait. And I tried to, I tried to help give myself notes that weren't. I mean, you saw the original court document. Yeah, yeah. There's like a lot. I mean, tons of words to say one thing. Yes. So essentially, yeah, the basics were apparently there was some murder in Rock Island or nearby. Yeah. Uh, that they threw out the convictions of three guys who had beaten up a dude, mm-hmm. and one person didn't even beat up the dude. I think it was just the driver. Mm. And um, they they basically commuted all of, they commuted all of it because they couldn't have known it was gonna kill him. Yeah. So this was back to that. Well, in that earlier version, when he went and did his first appeal, that aggravated um, battery of a child. They they said he wasn't reckless; that he would actually intended. Right. So it's that that hair splitting there. Right. He was trying to go after that again. Yeah. Yeah. And they also found. That his appellate counsel was effective yeah so
0: yeah wow so he didn't win basically
1: <laughs> yeah. um and actually it's worth mentioning so he is actually out now he got released um let me see when was that i think, I think it, it
0: was right just 2020. yeah i it was remember very I, recent. it was like right before um, christmas 2020 or something it was either in 2019 or 2020. Mm-hmm. um
1: but anyhow uh basically uh, he was convicted of first degree murder. Well, anyone who was convicted of first degree murder now wouldn't be given a day for day credit if they've got good behavior. Mm-hmm. Since he was convicted of it back in the 90s, you actually got credit. So even though it changed from first degree murder to felony murder, from life in prison to 50 years it sliced it in half at 25 for Mm -hmm. good behavior and he was out right before christmas i believe and okay so actually it was 2019 2019. yeah we the article (laughs) is from january of 2020 when um one of uh jamie's cousins was interviewed as being very upset basically they did not hear that scott was being released until he was already released and they felt the justin's had failed because 50 years should be 50 years, not 25. Yeah. Now the current truth in senten- sentencing law states that a person convicted of first degree murder shall receive no sentence credit and has to serve the entire sentence. So if he had committed or been uh, was found guilty <laughs> of committing the same offense today he would serve all 50 years.
0: Yeah. So he only served 25 he should have maybe served 50 but he's out. Yep. Out.
1: And now, we're going to pause for another one of those fun facts, if you will. Now, Keweeney, Illinois is the hog capital of the world. <laughs> it's a fun one, right? You're like, wait, somebody actually truly made this the hog capital of the world? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They did. There was a resolution <laughs> brought to the state house in Illinois, and I am going to read you the Gettys Pig address. <laughs> I love this thing. I remember reading this when I remember reading about this when I was in in high school. It's just freaking a riot. Okay. Mr. Speaker, ladies and gentlemen of the house, I had not intended to speak on this resolution. It speaks for itself. But I was deeply pained, grieved and humiliated by the raucous laughter and deriv- derisive jeers which greeted its reading. I would not be true to my district or to his imperial Majesty King Hog! if I allowed those insults to go unanswered, it should not be necessary to remind you, sons and daughters of Illinois, of the significance of this great championship which the farms of Henry County have brought to our beloved state. The hog is the very foundation of Illinois prosperity and has played a vital role in the history, the economy, and the development of this great state. Our pioneer forefathers who cleared the wilderness and conquered these prairies were nourished and sustained on a diet of hog and hominy the boys in blue from Illinois who ran the batteries at Vicksburg scaled the heights of Lookout Mountain and marched with Sherman to the sea were strengthened for those ordeals by rations of salt pork from the farms back home we take of this house we of this house take great pride in the ability of our illustrious speaker the honorable paul powell Whence came those sterling qualities that have molded his granite character? He came from Johnson County, where they weaned their babies on bacon rind, and his youthful years were nurtured by a diet of hog jowls and turnip greens. We have praised our Illinois athletes for the great victories they have brought to our state, and rightly so. May I remind you that King Hog played an important role in those magnificent victories? We have been informed that the pictures of the Rose Bowl game are to be shown this assembly, study these pictures and you will observe a pig skin in every play and watch carefully for the dramatic climax of that historic game that climax came when a blonde-haired youth from kewanee illinois the hog capital of the world scampered over the california goal line for the winning touchdown you can appreciate eddie T- Tunnicliffe's magnificent achievement when you understand that the tender years of his youth were strengthened by daily breakfasts of henry county bacon. And you, my colleagues from the great city of Chicago, who grunted the loudest during the reading of the resolution, you and in your innocence may cherish the delusion that you have little in common with the Illinois hog. I assure you that you do. Plenty. Every city must have some economic justification for its existence. That was true in the ancient past, and it is true today. Ships made Carthage. The wars made Rome. Fear made Milwaukee. Gold-made gnome, cotton built Atlanta, the harbor built New York, but good old Chicago was built on pork. Mr. Speaker, in view of these historic facts and economic truths, I ask unanimous consent for the suspension of the rules and the immediate consideration of this resolution.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I can't help but laugh. I'm trying to, like, hold myself in (laughs) while you're reading this, because... It is the wow. best,
1: isn't it? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it turns out there was no debate on the, and the motion and the resolution creating Kiwani as the hog capital of the world. It was immediately adopted on a unanimous vote.
0: And for those of you who have never been to Kiwani, uh, every Labor Day weekend there is a hog days.
1: You betcha.
0: And you can go and eat some pork. Have some uh, apple cider slushies as oh, one of the our cider favorite. slushies are
1: the best part. I can make some pork. Oh but, yeah.
0: Yeah. The cider slushies are mm, yeah, good. There's a parade, there's I I mean there's all kinds of events going on for the weekends. So you know, if you're ever really bored, you, you can go to go hog days.
1: Give the carnies a checkout, man. I mean, why not? I there's mean a, then you can fun run there's the hog oh, day yeah. fun run don't the
0: forget fun that run. there also is a, a pageant usually yes, with a queen I believe so. yeah and um, it's been um a few years. there there's a lot yeah there's a lot there's concerts there's there's fun things to do so you know it is
1: yeah you know. longest ponytail contest i remember yeah. that one yeah i didn't win cuz there were people with longer hair than me
0: yeah but there's definitely i mean it's it's uh something uh, to maybe put on your bucket list you yeah know? i mean
1: just if you go once just because yeah. you want to i mean you might think we're talking about our hometown to be derisive or anything but no I actually know. i mean it's what it is yeah it's a small town
0: i mean hey we've got tons of good friends from back home or it, it, it we have fond memories oh, there's yeah. you know I
1: mean, quite Maybe a few of my old friends have moved away, but there's still a handful. we
0: were completely in love with the town. But
1: you yeah, know well, we were kind of outcasts. Yeah. I moved away. You weren't born there.
0: Yes, so not quite, not quite accepted. But I was okay with you know.
1: I was ready to go when I went. Yeah, actually, I missed out on the Pollock case. I was in the military at the time. Yeah. I think
0: I was still in, in California. I had I pretty much headed out as soon as I hit the end of high school too yeah. so I mean yeah it just I mean but it's not a bad time it's it definitely hog days is fun so
1: <laughs> so you might think we're done with the uh, the Pollux case actually one of the things that really came out of all this is we were looking at um, there's another conversation here children dying at the hands of mothers live in boyfriends and then the mothers found guilty too yes so between the years of 1992 and 1997, there were four children who were between the ages of, I think it was 16 months and like three and a half years, maybe four, who all died at the hands of a live-in boyfriend or friend of other sorts. Um, besides Jamie Sue, there was a 16-month-old named Charday Williams. Her mom, Sonia, and her boyfriend, Steve Thompson, had moved from Aurora to Kiwani months before. Sonia was only 20, Steve was 27. Steve was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Sonia was also convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison because she should have known better. Um, her conviction was actually set aside after Tabitha's case was dismissed. Um, Now, there was a a significant difference. Um, Sonia readily admitted that she did suspect her boyfriend was abusing her child for at least the two months prior to her death. So the state had the ability to refile, but um, they actually did not. Um, So she was let um, go, if you will. Um, There was also a young boy named Matthew Moat a guy named Ray Burgess, who was 29 at the time. He was sentenced to die for the brutal breeding of this three-year-old um, on September 24, 1994. He was caring for the boy while the boy's mother, Dina Kent, was gone from their home that she had lived with, Mr. Burgess. Ms. Kent was, was sentenced to 36 years in prison for failing to protect her son. I read a a bunch of things about this young boy. Uh, Apparently, a former juror on the case said he still has nightmares, and most of the jury actually had to receive some counseling afterwards. Wow. Um, The prosecutor said that little Matthew was sexually assaulted and Mm -hmm. beaten repeatedly, including at least one instance involving a dog leash. During the autopsy, a doctor counted more than 120 external injuries and later described some of them as acts of torture. Um, one expert testified during the trial that there were injuries comparable to what would happen if a child fell 20 feet onto a concrete surface or is thrown from a moving vehicle. Wow. Ray Burgess actually died in jail in 2015. Good.
0: (laughs) Sorry, that's (laughs) what happened to a nicer guy. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, he had had some other convictions before for other things, but this was the family had been begging for clemency for a long time. And while she suspected some things were going on, she was scared of Ray, and she also didn't have mental capacity um, to deal with the situation. She had a very low IQ, Mm -hmm. IQ of 71. Her family members had continually tried to find a way to get them to safety by filing reports on Ray prior to Matthew's death. Actually, one of the the little outcomes here is actually one of the child welfare officers lost their job because they didn't pay enough attention. Wow.
0: Well, well, I mean...
1: they didn't detect the abuse after having, I don't know how many times they were filed. That, I didn't have a clear number, but it yeah. was multiple. And this was in Cambridge, Illinois. Um, Dina's conviction was also set aside after Tabitha's case, but the prosecutors did plan to refile. I was still trying to find out if she was back in jail or not. Again, small-town crimes, mm-hmm. unless it makes the paper, it can be really hard to find some of this. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like we found more about Tabitha's case than we yes. found about Scott's. Because most of Scott's cases, Scott's stuff was hearings. Yes. And those hearings we weren't able to find in the fine law type stuff. And it maybe if we were a little like, more...
0: yeah, Yeah, I mean, it seemed like some of the stuff was maybe not... Put out online, it, you know, it's hard It's an to... old enough case, yeah.
1: The mid, mid to late and mid nineties, yeah, and well, also the subsequent things. I don't know. Again, small town, right? Did we adopt this stuff? I mean, Henry County is a lot of cornfields and soybean fields, yes. <laughs> um, and then there was a fourth child, Jerry Nelson. Um, a man. This was also a three-year-old. So, Douglas Earl Oaks never a good thing when somebody has three names <laughs> no. he was on death row for the July 31st uh, 1992 beating murder of Jerry Nelson I do know that um, that we don't do deaths, the, the death penalty anymore in Illinois so all oh. of the people who were on death row turned in they were commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole okay so it just, eh, it's just just a little something so this was also Cambridge, but it doesn't matter. So um, he beat the boy to death in the tiny Cambridge apartment where Miss Nelson was living with her son. So according to the trial testimony, um, Ms. Nelson allowed uh, Douglas Earl Oakes to stay with her for several days despite prior allegations that he had abused her son. She was sentenced to 75 years in prison, she maintained that she was in the shower when Mr. Oakes fatally injured her son. I don't have all the detail I did have of uh, poor, poor young Mr. Moat, but uh, apparently her conviction was also overturned after Tabitha was released and they decided not to retry her. So you could say that Tabitha's case, working with the Northwestern um, folks, uh, it it changed case law. It which... did,
0: and it? definitely affected several cases as you can see
1: i mean and and you wonder it's like small town cambridge is even smaller than Mm kewanee and it's the county seat of henry county um you know a young lady with a low iq i don't have a lot of information on um jerry nelson's mom but you you run into there isn't a ton of industry there yes there are people who live there and live there very well Mm -hmm. um it is a lower cost of living so you don't have to really high paying job to be pretty darn comfortable there yeah but there's also a lot of people who are looking for jobs and there you, you you wonder if some of these folks just felt they were um trapped in these situations and couldn't leave i don't know
0: yeah it's hard to say but you know
1: are they necessarily bad mothers
0: right and that yeah. that I think that's kind of that that whole um, again, going back to that, you know, you should have known well, I, I, that that's so hard to how do you even judge that? Like, yeah,
1: what's what's the you know how many building blocks? how many do, how many pieces of evidence do you need to and how much time? right? I mean, obviously, I mean, one of the things with like the Ray Burgess case, her poor little Matthew, um her family was really trying to get it seen by DCFS but yeah. you know maybe she just didn't have the the wherewithal and the ability
0: well and it sounds like you know <laughs> in that case at least I mean even if she did know she wasn't able to get away from this guy it right. didn't and sometimes that's the thing people need to realize too is if you're in an abusive relationship it's not easy to leave
1: yeah so. I mean it Walk a mile in their shoes. Maybe yeah. you'd be able to know. And that was—I remember when uh, in a bunch of these different articles, when you're talking about Tabitha, there was some discussions that she had been um, uh, investigated before. But I only found one yeah. actual investigation. There were some people who, as character with- witnesses, had said that her kids were sometimes dirty and disheveled. Show me a five-year-old that's always clean, and <laughs> no <wow>. kidding. <laughs> I know several family and friends would be like, huh, "Sweet, yeah, can you take care of my kid?" <laughs> no kidding, yeah. I mean, it's... And, but there was one thing where it was like um, a nurse. I guess she took the kids in to get their vaccinations, and she was late. Yeah, and again, it's not like today where we have a smartphone <laughs> that reminds you every five seconds to do the things. But...
0: Right. I mean, things happen. So, right. yeah. anyhow, it's... we could probably talk. We could really. Sp- split a lot of hairs because there's a lot of details there definitely i mean we gave you what i i think the best overall vision of what happened that we could right so well that's pretty much the episode the end of this episode okay. Woo, um, we finished one woohoo and finally the equipment was uh fixed so sorry about oh the one week delay but we were having all kinds of issues well,
1: you know first time you use equipment I mean we were just like okay I'm so done with this is it time for rum
0: <laughs> yeah last week
1: like by the time we actually got the equipment working then it was like oh and now we sound like we're in a concert hall what yeah. the heck? just buttons
0: just buttons and yeah, so hopefully you have enjoyed this episode and you will join us again in two weeks where we talk about another Kiwani case. Ooh. Um, so thank you for listening to Nothing Happens in a Small Town, where things do happen and small towns are not the quite quaint places you think they are.
1: You might want to lock those doors. Yeah. That one guy is coming
0: to get your stuff. No kidding. Remember, <laughs> lock your doors. All right. So if you want to follow us on social media, our Instagram is nothing happens in a small town. Twitter is at n-h I A-S-T. Standing for it, nothing, nothing happens, happens in, in a small town. town. Facebook is same. Nothing, nothing happens in a small town. Gmail. Nothing happens in a small town at gmail.com. And we will see you again in two weeks. Looking forward to it. Woohoo!